Hello fellow Blue Earthers and welcome to another episode of the Blue Earth Summit podcast. I'm Lauren Esbitt and in our final episode before the big event, we're doing something a little bit different. I've spent the last few months in a unique position of privilege, interviewing some of the world's leading environmental experts and pioneers. We've heard from scientists, brands, business owners and activists, all working in their own way to make our planet healthier, cleaner and ultimately a better place for us to all live. This week, we're offering up the best of those insights. If you want to flick through to the parts you're most inspired by, we've popped the timestamps in the description for you to fast forward. But first, let's hear from Hugo Tagholm, founder of the National Marine Conservation and Campaigning Charity, Surfers Against Sewage. I noticed on your website it says that um, Surfers Against Sewage um, has an ambition for the UK to be net zero by 2030. And for those who might not be up to speed with terminology around climate change, what does that mean? Well, yeah, look, that's a really good question. And at the moment, um, net zero is about, of course, the absolute reductions you can make in terms of carbon emissions, um, but also net zero encapsulates offsets and other ways of, of hopefully mitigating the emissions that you can't achieve. The latter is the less desirable part of that equation. And there's a big debate around the benefits and pros and cons of offsets. And the focus must always be on the reductions of emissions. And that's what we're doing here at our headquarters in Cornwall, um, solar panels for the roof, electric van, the reductions we can make on all of the appliances and things this office uses. And so, you know, that's in the sort of in the everyday language rather than the sort of the the language of scope one and scope two and and other things that tend to give people the the sort of boredom of the space. But the, the real thing is, it's very black and white. It's like, how do we reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that we're emitting as an organization and then nationally how do we push for that and call for that in a very ambitious time scale this government this country has a legal obligation um, under the paris agreement on on action on on climate change and we need to push for that further and faster um, we need to make sure that this country truly is committed to reducing emissions not reopening fracking not exploring the North Sea for oil and gas, not doubling down on fossil fuels, but actually investing in uh, offshore and onshore green energy, solar and wind, about insulating houses, about changing the system around us that can truly have the long-term gains we need, not looking at the short-term reaction to the current um, energy crisis, which you know, even looking for for more oil and gas is not gonna not gonna help with those those bills anyway. That's a fool's lantern. Uh, no matter who's who's uh, leading the way with it, we need to make sure we're looking at the progressive, practical, and proven technologies that can help us achieve our net zero or zero ambitions. We should really call them in terms of carbon emissions. And we know that the offshore wind is already one of the cheapest forms, if not the cheapest form of energy. You know, we know that 50 billion pounds could potentially install enough of those turbines to power all of our houses. Now, we've just given the energy industry 100 billion or more to line their own pockets. The world is in a, in a strange place in decision making. Just going back to um, what you were saying about Surfers Against Sewage as a charity, uh, but also, I guess, as a, as a business. Last year, you talked about at 
at the summit that you've really felt that business was the best vehicle for change in the next decade. Do you still think that? One of the best vehicles for change. Business operates in a policy and regulatory framework and needs to. I mean, contrary to what this government is currently proposing, which is a a massive deregulation agenda, business needs a level playing field and it needs to know what it can and can't do. And unless it's pushed strongly to do that, ultimately the, the decisions they'll make will be based around financial gain. So we need to make sure that they are um, strongly regulated by good laws um, and policy that that delivers the, the changes we need to see. And that's where we, we always see the biggest wins for the environment. The changes we need to see are huge and will impact all of our lives and things that we do today. We may need to quickly accept we won't be able to do tomorrow or in the future. And we've seen the dress rehearsal with the pandemic. We've seen the changes that brought. But um, let's not be complacent and think that the businesses that provide everything that we have today can carry on as they are. Just as back when oil replaced whale oil, we saw that the whaling industry had to go out of business. There wasn't a, a good model to say, no, let's carry on getting that blubber and lighting our streets with it and creating products out of it. It was like, this just has to end. And sure, there are, there are caveats to that, but ultimately it had to end. So there wasn't a good whaling business. There wasn't a whaling business that everyone felt, oh no, this is, this is the acceptable face of whaling. This is how I get my whaling whale products. So let's be like really clear that some businesses have to go out of business, full stop, has to happen. There's the fact that organizations like SAS has, has blown the, 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 the lid on, on this issue in particular around water quality and that campaign and that data that all of those papers and everyone's referring to now is something that we've, we've been working on for over a decade now and have got to the space where it's daily sort of news. And so we, we've worked very hard on making sure the water industry is held to account. There's the other thing, the, the, the sort of central part to it is that we campaign to get access to that data. And there's more data in the space now. The water companies have to report on their sewage spills. And that didn't happen before. So the water companies were doing this in 1991, 92, 93, 94, 95, right through to where we are now. But no one had called them out on the data for it. So they could just get away with it. It was like, yeah, we've done everything we need to do. There's no problem. But actually, they were doing this thing. And so so actually, we've we've exposed them. This has been a big bit of investigative campaigning there's been a big bit of sort of a big lift in terms of technology and data sharing and it's been a really big lift in terms of the public communications around it and so it has got worse from some angles there's more people there's more pressure on a a, a underinvested sewage system the water industry is is underfunded or cut funding by about 20 percent over the last 10 or 15 years into sewage infrastructure our waterways, they've declined in health over this time. Just 14% meet good ecological status. We're seeing more sewage going back into our coastline. So there's lots of different angles you can take it from. But the, the one angle you need to remind yourself on it is you've got an industry that's made about £72 billion in dividends since privatization. They've invested, I think, in the region of $5 billion in sewage infrastructure. And uh, they're getting away with polluting each and every day and claiming that they don't have the money sometimes to be able to fix it. And they do have the money to fix it. And sadly, it will have to come out of the, the foreign holiday fund and swimming pool fund of their chief executives and shareholders. And it shouldn't be coming out of the pocket of everyday taxpayers in the UK. 
I was on the train um, going up to London the other day and some people were sat next to me and I heard sort of what maybe I phrase almost as sort of celebratory doom- doomism from the, the, the young university students next to me. I was like, well, well, what can we do now? Like our, our future's like being robbed, so we may as well just have a good good time. Let's go out and sort of party. And like, I understand that concept. I think one of the biggest things I would say to young people in terms of getting interested is don't be fooled by the establishment and people who, who want your voice and want you as part of their branding texture. It's not a thing. It's not a thing to think that you should be the ones who come along and save the world. It shouldn't be you who props up the current business model that, that, that then ruins your own future. And so I think the important thing is, is how do you use your voice to call for change now? You know, we, we know that, that the rate of change, you know, we're seeing it accelerate, needs leaders now to make the changes to preserve that future. And we need, you know, we need a, you know, a future generations bill that will actually preserve our kids and their grandkids and beyond that, their future. Um, currently, all bills are focused about maximizing the return for this generation and the opportunities we have. And, you know, we have to be in a space where where things change to, to say that we can't have it all now. And who knows what that will look like in a few years? Who knows whether we'll be able to fly around the world or on short hop sort of flights so easily? Who knows whether we'll be able to eat industrially farmed salmon each and every day who knows whether we'll be able to consume as many surfboards as we currently consume as a as a surfing community so all of those things you know are for grabs and it's important that young people realize that their voice counts and they should be calling for change now they shouldn't be told that in the future when they are leaders they can then create the change that the world needs that is the biggest cop out that is what all leaders and all businesses want to say oh young people they'll come along and fix the mess we've made you know it's a really easy it's a baton passing of responsibility that is the biggest hoax out there you know we need young people of course to be prepared for their own leadership but they need now to be told and understand that they can challenge business leaders and governments and politicians to act as fast as they can. And we've seen great examples of that with Greta Thunberg and the Fridays for the Future movement. We see young people rising up and really showing their discontent because people who probably are my age and older don't understand they've lived through the age of abundance when they can have whatever they want, whenever they want on tap. And that age cannot carry on forever. We're living on a finite planet. No one's created a circular system that delivers that. And even some of the future businesses, you know, let's put the challenge out there. You can't necessarily dig up all of the democratic, democratic Republic of Congo to, to make batteries for, for electric vehicles for the, the wealthiest in society. You know, how do we approach these things and how do we create a, a, a new future that is, is really sustainable? And we need young people to keep rising up um, and keep voicing their concerns. Next up is Kate Larson. Kate advises businesses and investors on how to improve their environmental, sustainability and social policies when it comes to supply chains. She told me how raw materials are sourced and why brands need to take ownership over their supply chain. Even if you do production in the UK, which would be fantastic, raw materials are still coming from around the world. They're still coming from India. They're still coming from China. And we're all part of what happens in the world and it has implications for all of us. Should it be the case in an ideal world that brands own their own factories? That's where you're absolutely taking ownership 
Um, look, it's really difficult. If you or I wanted to start a small brand, like some of the people we know have done, and, and I've tried to do a few years back in my own career, you know, where, where would you have the capital, the money to actually build a factory, which might cost half a million, a million more dollars. <laughs> so that's the challenge is everyone wants to sell stuff and has great ideas and design. Um, but ultimately, yeah, if you're a big company, a really positive move, it's very nascent, I'm seeing, is of big, very big brands saying, well, actually, maybe we should own a few more of our own operations, our own production. So it's it's early days on that. But in principle, that is the main way to have full control of environmental and and worker conditions impacts. You know for sure that you're not polluting the air or the water if you're managing it. You can get pretty good. Um, you know, you can make good efforts to verify similar with a key supplier. But when you've got lots of them that, you know, there's a lot of work to do. So this world of sustainability, we can be we can have our moments of being depressed that things are not the way we want we know they should be. But at the same time, we can get back into the pragmatism of and get inspired with just just advocating the solutions. And you know, I say that for the listeners because it does have an impact. There's things we've advocated in this industry of sustainability, so to speak, 10 years ago. We were all frustrated and depressed it wasn't happening. And I'm now seeing it happening at scale. And I'm going, oh, my goodness, wow, we never really dreamed it would actually happen. So, you know, stay positive is my... <laughs> so to answer your question again, yeah, maybe we'll see a lot more companies owning their own operations in the next few years. And and that would, to me, also align to that question on reshoring, on home shoring. So again, you know, we see leaders who will try to make the product closer to the market. So here in the UK, have a UK factory, Rapa Nui, Finisterre, etc. But that's not only needed because then we can monitor the labor conditions better and ensure people really are treated better, um, but also the carbon, the environmental footprint. I mean, it's it's not just the carbon footprint of those ships, which currently often are still polluting out diesel emissions as they ship that product around the world. But th there's also marine impacts for people listening who care about the ocean. So that whole piece on reshoring and, and owning your own, I'm a big fan of that model. <laughs> and, um, we, it's, it's so nascent. It's so early days to go back to the old ways. But I hope, I hope we see that in the next 10 years or so. Really, what you want to be doing is asking companies to do more. So you don't have to have the perfect question to them. You don't have to know the standards and all the initiatives I've been describing. Just your voice, be it responding on an Instagram post, sending an email, asking them on Twitter, whatever, saying, I hope you're making sure the workers who make these things are looked after, or I hope you're making sure your supply chain doesn't have pollution. Your voice saying any sort of question like that adds up. It helps make a difference. So if nothing else, and if you don't have time to get your head around all the, all the learning in this space, because this is why people like myself are full-time professionals on it, because there's just so many things. Don't worry about all that. Just keep it really simple and ask companies, especially companies you really care about, you know, I know you're doing some good stuff, but I want to see you do more. Or tell me more about where you make this. All of those questions absolutely cause companies to 
improve their efforts. And I wouldn't say like go from bad to good because it's not that simple, but keep up their efforts. And I would strongly encourage everyone to do that, especially if they know that you're their customer or their follower. Your voice is even more important than just that petition you might sign. Do sign the petitions and things, but please, you know, any of those. I went shopping for an outdoor bag today and I couldn't figure out, you know, tag, 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 which one of you does the most on environment tell me or something. I mean, make them compete for it. They want to. <laughs> Serious. You know, I've worked inside companies. We, your voice as the consumer to us is massive. And I think people don't realize that. They think their voice goes into an ether. You may not get, the company's not going to make the change immediately, but you might be quoted in the next PowerPoint to the CEO explaining the sustainability person saying why the company needs to do these things and, and really pushing for that budget and that business model shift even too, to get on with making those changes. How, you know, do people battle the cost of the living crisis with also wanting, you know, affordable goods and services that have ethical supply chains and, and production? Firstly, for environmental reasons and social, buying from charity shops is one of the best things you can do. You're stopping a product going into landfill. You're stopping it being shipped to Africa with all the emissions that that takes and where it may end up in another landfill. Yeah, okay, there's some stuff in there that's not great, but there's also some stuff that is great. And just get in and have a look before you go to buy something new somewhere. And then the second point on that is you're giving money to charities who are advocating for and driving the solutions, especially if it was Oxfam or someone like that. So that's the first thing you can do. You know, their products are often two, two pounds, three pounds, four pounds, five pounds. So, you know, it's a pretty budget way as well. Usually depends. These peer services online where you can buy vintage, secondhand, pre-loved. That's um, a way to keep, keep it lower priced as well, although not quite as cheap as charity shops. Then we get to the kind of question of should I buy from Primark and H&M, I guess, in a way. Those companies have pretty huge ethical trade and sustainability teams these days. H&M have about 100 people. Um, I don't know the full number for Primark, but I know about eight people on that team. Those individuals are really dedicated to this work and work really hard on it. But we all know that the overall business model, you know, is still trying to shift out of sell lots of stuff to um, a more sustainable business model, and they haven't nailed it yet. This is where I go back to that point on your voice counts. Just because you bought something from a way more expensive brand doesn't mean that they were more ethical. Let's head to Wales next and hear from Welsh wildlife biologist, broadcaster, filmmaker and conservationist Lizzie Daly, who shares her research and adventures with thousands of social media followers. You know, if you don't work in sustainability or anything to do with the earth, I guess, or you don't pick up newspapers about it or it, it, or you don't follow people on social media, you know, how are you, how are you meant to know about it? And also given that we've been in the pandemic, you, you don't socialize as much. So it's, it's sort of like, how do you keep up with these things unless you are constantly tapping into social media and the media? And even then the media drip feeds you what they th- think, I guess, buys magazines and newspapers. So <laughs> can I just say as well, on that point, that is such a good point. So it actually came up as part of the conversations I had with people like Ochana and, and the Koi work, because they were like, look, you are producing this 
high level broadcasting, especially in the UK, here we are, we have an opportunity to frame all these like huge conversations about the decisions on our planet, massively important. But there was a real level of inaccessibility. And I was the same, like the, the experience that I had inside the blue, the blue zone, sometimes I was just like, hello, I'm just talking to the people inside the blue zone. And I, then I'd go home and I'd go on the news and social media and it didn't reflect the conversations that were going out. Sure, all the conversations that I, I was having were streamed onto um, a website. But as you say, unless you were on that, that UN website all day long, every day, following it meticulously, you're not going to be part of all of those important, important things. And actually what Koi uh, highlighted, which is so true, is that how many individuals, especially you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, how many individuals have access to a laptop, a computer, a Wi-Fi 24-7 to watch all these conversations? Do they speak English? Is this being translated into different languages? How much of this information is being made accessible to the white people? It was an unbelievable experience to be part of. And, you know, if anyone said, would you do it again? 100% I'd do it again. Um, but I would love to see more of that. And I think you're spot on by highlighting that as an actual issue and how I think it's a massive area of improvement moving forward. We need to better our accessibility to these conversations and these decisions. From the Welsh mountains to the beaches of Bali, we've heard from people all over the world on the Blue Earth Summit podcast. And this next interview got us plotting a move to Indonesia. We spoke to Mike Weeks from Laconic Infrastructure Partners about the work he's doing to develop the world's largest organic regenerative eco-culture project. Bali actually is a very special place. I mean, it's, it's become a victim of its own success from a tourism perspective. Pre-COVID, there were 20 million people a year coming in here, tourists, all using all of the facilities and water and you know, creating a whole lot of garbage and everything else. And so partly because of COVID, but it was happening before. The governor here, Governor Costa, is a brilliant man who's incredibly focused on both progress technologically, but also keeping Balinese values. And one of those values is the protection of the natural assets here, the land and the ocean. And so the government here is making a very large convincing push to turn the whole island organic in the next three to four years so they want to do away with all petrochemical non-organic fertilizers urea nitrogen fixes pesticides so agriculturally they want to turn this into a bit of a utopia um, and also bring back a lot of the biodiversity that's been lost during the so-called green revolution which is when chemical companies came in and sold everyone on the idea of um, higher crop yields at the expense of killing off all of the insect life um, and so at my company that i work at and the head of all of the business development activities we have a very large stake in organic regenerative agriculture and so we run an organic farm down here and we use it not to grow crops that we're going to sell it's a it's actually a non not-for-profit program but we test so we test organic fertilizers we test novel approaches we test different plants for water filtration because the water here is so uh, heavily polluted and so my a lot of my time even though i work in the office behind a computer for most of my day doing business development a lot of my time is also spent on a farm here understanding how we can restore polluted depleted rice paddy fields and bring them back to full life as well as supporting biodiversity and cleaning the waters and and really just giving the land a chance to come back restore and 
be like it was 50 years ago before tourism swept through. Bali is known for all of its beauty, but it's also known for its garbage problems and its polluted roads. And that's those are the other two approaches that are being heavily worked on, uh, which is cleaning up the garbage and cleaning up the pollution here. So I, you know, I live here because I think it's going to be something of a an, orga- an organic utopia within the next ten years. If we go right back to the beginning, what uh, does ESG stand for, and what what role does it play? Oh well, it's a term that really has been hijacked by anyone who wants to make money from looking good. Uh, not anyone, but uh, well, it's true because there's so much BS out there. Um, so it stands for environmental social governance, and so this is looking at business activities that are beneficial to the environment, to society, and they are governed by, it is intended to be, uh, very strict protocols and rules. In our case, uh, at Laconic, everything we do is environmentally sound and socially sound. We wouldn't sacrifice one for the other. In here, for instance, I can tell you very clearly, we, we pay double the rates to our farmers working on our land that would be paid to, and it may even be more than double, what other farmers are being paid or what they're making on the land around here. Um, and that is also making them working in a on fields that have no chemicals that are likely going to cause them cancer. They have great working conditions. Um, everything we do has a benefit to local communities and the broader society as well as to the environment. So ESG is environmental social governance. The problem with ESG is that so many big companies, uh, they put it on their proverbial, maybe they even literal business cards or in their marketing, and it acts as a way to do greenwashing. So they'll talk about doing environmental social governance, but actually this is like big oil companies who are making, let's say, $50 billion in profit putting a hundred million dollars into solar or renewables or hydrogen it's total bs but you know those companies run on run to make profits and so from a business perspective it's understandable but good luck having a business if there's if it's scorched earth and we don't have an environment for the business to be sustained from in 20 or 30 years so esg is a way of uh, stating your intent to do good in the world as a business and so if you're not, if you're not working um, in ESG or you're not working uh, in a business that's adopting sustainable principles or BS principles, as you like to put them, where would you start learning about like these kinds of concepts and topics? Look, uh, the reason that opinions are polarized on it is because it's not because of the principle of it. In principle, it's a fantastic idea, but it's the fact that companies will use will hijack it to make themselves look good this is this is greenwashing right this is hedge funds who say hey we we're a hedge fund to invest in sustainable development we invest in organic cotton and that's one percent of their total fund and the other 99 percent is arms and oil and gas and cheap crappy clothes that no one needs that children have been making in third world countries uh, so it's used as a shield to greenwash. And, and that's the difficult part of it is how do you actually cut through all of the uh, potential fake use of the current ES, need for ESG um, activities and, and governance? And it's not going to be governments that impose that. You know, 
the need for this is too big and there's too many companies and there's always just ways around it. So um, I think you can probably create your own measures for understanding whether you're working with ethical, genuinely ethical companies. And that's, that's by looking at how transparent they are. In the history of agriculture, um, why were uh, chemical products like brought into the farming chain or, or, or the farming agricultural cycle in the first place? Well, I'm no farm or agricultural historian, for one. I mean, I, I joke about being a farmer myself. You know, I walk around our farm asking for things to be done on the farm with our team here. Uh, but the real farmers who are out there seven or eight hours a day uh, are not in this podcast room right now. But I do have a deep interest in agriculture uh, because I have two children and I I suspect that agriculture will be one of the major factors in the years ahead that will either ruin the planet or give us a chance to actually restore and protect it. If you look at the degradation of the Amazon rainforest, much of it is for agriculture purposes, of course. It's chopping trees down, it's chopping old-growth forests so that you can grow soybeans. And those soybeans are being grown, probably genetically modified, so that they can feed cattle, so that people in rich Western countries can eat beef, or maybe just some of the filth that, that you buy in fast food burger chains. But to answer your question around the uh, the chemical inputs... And why they've been implemented is because, well, one, so from a pesticide perspective, you know, it's much easier just to, to spray tens of thousands of acres with a killer agent that kills all the bugs than it is to try and encourage predator bugs that will keep a natural balance. You're going to make, in the short term at least, a lot more money by using chemical herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers because you'll get bigger yields at the start. Now, those yields, of course, are going to be deeply um, penetrated with those chemicals. Uh, down here where uh, the rice paddy fields are sprayed with fertilizers and urea and uh, pesticides. Many of the farmers here don't eat their own rice, they sell it. And they use that money to buy cheaper rice that comes from up in the mountains where none of the chemicals are being used. So they'll, they know that what they're producing isn't really edible, they don't want to feed it to their kids. And so the core reason for all of these chemicals is cash, it's money. From one mic to another, this time Mike Barry, a leader in sustainable change and one of the pioneers of green business in the corporate world. Mike helped to develop, launch and implement Marks and Spencer's groundbreaking sustainability programme, Plan A. How has your perception of sustainability changed over time? Well, I mean, you know, I was talking about this yesterday. I mean, I've worked for 30 years now in the world of business and environment. Started in 1992 on the back of a chemistry degree with a small environmental consultancy called the Water Research Centre, a lovely little organisation. And the real preoccupation then was sewage pollution. It was about uh, waste, landfill, incineration. No discussion about the climate crisis then back in the 1990s. And the focus then was very much about compliance, the rules, and let's just as a business make sure we just get 1% ahead of the rules, but no more. And I think if anything, what I've seen, be most excited about about the last two or three years is a recognition that less bad or risk management just doesn't cut it. The climate crisis, the pollution crisis, the social crisis that the planet faces can only be solved by a radical shift in how we do business. So that's, that's point number one. 
Point number two is again, I grew up in a world not just about incrementalism, but in a world of sustainable production. It was about making factories and farms and forests and fisheries and fields behind the scenes less bad. But people never engage the end consumer in asking them, do you want to consume fundamentally different so we can live within the boundaries of the planet? And the second thing I'm seeing now is we're starting, and I stress the word starting, to have a conversation about do we, should we be consuming as we do? Irrespective of whether products be made well or badly, should we consume as we do? And the third and final observation is, is in the past, I saw lots of businesses trying to solve this on their own. They'd have a nice press release, they'd get out there, sharp elbows, I'm the best, no one else is doing anything. And now people are recognising we're all part of the same failing economic ecosystem that none of us on our own can correct. So businesses have to work together in collaboration, either as a sector, great competitors, Walmart and Tesco's, Pepsi and Coke have got to work together on this. Or in terms of your scope three emissions, which is about bringing thousands of, of suppliers and thousands of business partners together with you, the big corporate, to drive the sustainable change that we need as well. So there are three big changes I've seen across those 30 years. What we've got to do is you've got to send the signal as a generation to the big producers and to government to say, we don't want to live in that world. We want to be excited by the clothing we wear, but excite me in a different way that doesn't just involve buying loads of cheap crap that falls apart after a couple of wears. It's made from dreadfully polluting raw materials, which is what we've got now. Um, if a circular economy is is the goal, um, how does a capitalist society exist in that framework? Yeah, we're getting to the heart of it now. <laughs> the elephant in the room consumption. So, 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 so let me let me answer it in two ways. I mean, one, let me just frame why the circular economy has not taken off as fast as the net zero economy. And remember all my reservations, concerns and kicking of the system for not doing enough of net zero. But let's just for now say it's relatively ahead of circularity. And that's because on the global scale for corporations, net zero now has a, an architecture. IPCC reports saying this is the one definitive view of science, COP process bringing governments together, National government setting net zero goals and nationally determined contributions. You've then got sector initiatives like Race to Zero bringing businesses together to change the system. You've got innovators like Tesla bringing new electric uh, batteries into the system to, to, to disrupt the, the norm. You've got an architecture of science-based targets initiatives, CDP, World Benchmarking Alliance, TCFD, that allow there are a set of rules that businesses have to follow. So from top to bottom on circle on carbon. I've got something I can follow as a business to a new new place. Circularity, I have none of that. In fact, the European Union yesterday issued a new circular economy action plan, which for the first time globally starts to set out what this new system might look like. Hooray. That starts to give business the certainty to start to make some big steps to change how we do it. That then takes me to the second part of the answer, which is consumption, the elephant in the room. And I said right in the uh, earliest framing, we have to have a conversation with people about consuming very differently. And we live in a world where every, virtually every boardroom that I would know today wants to sell more stuff next year than this stuff this year. And if they didn't, the chief executive sacked and the investor would you know, sell them to somebody else. And we have to have this paradigm where we can explain to business that you can create the value an economic value without physical growth. And, you know, we, we've seen it in the shift from DVDs to streaming music, haven't we? But we've got two or three sectors, particularly technology, the constantly updatable, uh, you know, mobile phone that, you know, everybody's 
hooked on changing every six months, fashion we've already discussed. We've got to find a way of helping people have the outcomes that they want, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't involve just consuming physical stuff and changing something every day and every week. Let's hear from Gail Bradbrook, a co-founder of the social movement Extinction Rebellion. Gail told me why she believes mass civil disobedience is a solution to climate change. Well, I think from my perspective, um, I'm increasingly thinking it's important that people recognise we have a, a global political economic system that's hardwired to destroy life on Earth. It incentivizes harm. And it's got a mechanism that's cancerous baked in. It wants to grow no matter what. And in the face of that, people who are employed in different corporations, companies, even uh, companies with good purpose and good intentions, are likely to find themselves being compromised and, and, and placed in service to the destruction of the planet. And I, and I include, and I especially in some ways mean people who are sort of on the... ESG side of things, environmental social governance side of things. And so, you know, th the question then is, what, what does that require of people in, in those positions? What's their responsibilities in, the, in these times? And, and how can we support people to take action together? Going back um, to what you were saying about, you know, um, parents not potentially not wanting to, you know, rally rally on the streets like you know I'm, I'm happy to share my view on that I um I personally don't see myself as part of the solution of rallying on the streets and I don't know whether that's because I don't yet at this point want that to be a part of my identity or if I if my family and friends thought that I was all of a sudden this extinction rebellion that you know that would be the end of our friendship because they would put me in this new box of radical wacky person but why is it in 2018 when Extinction Rebellion, you know, came about and spread so quickly that that you as a co-founder thought that mass civil disobedience was a solution to all the things that are happening? I mean, in short, because it's, I and others had studied social movement theory and studied how things change. And, you know, you, you have a vote because of the actions of the suffragists and the suffragettes, uh, the, the civil rights movement, the Indian independence movement, I, the, the fact the right to roam in the UK, the fact that you can go out for a walk in the countryside, the, the fact they have a weekend that you might have paid holidays. By the way, all of these things that Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to take away, listen to what he's been saying very worryingly, have been fought for the fact that you can even have trade unions again those rights are being eroded so we, we only have the rights that we fight for there is a tendency in humanity and that we now know the neurophysiology of this another bit of an obsession at the minute um, we understand how human beings can be in, in different neurological states neurophysiological states so there are you know and I can add a lot of sort of jargony words to this if you want but um, there is basically the sort of states of a, a very sort of human beingness, which is in connection to life. Some people call it the ventral vagal system. It's curious and it's playful and it's empathetic and it's cooperative. And that is a, a, a physiological state that you can be in. And there's another one that's associated with the um, sympathetic nervous system, fight, flight, freeze type of mechanisms where it's very easy to set people up in pol polarisation with each other. You can have in-group, out-group effects, uh, people are trying to protect their sense of identity. People don't want to be associated with being a certain thing or, you know, with this group or that group. 
we, we now know that the human body is ingesting a credit card size amount of plastic every two weeks. You know, and there are forever chemicals in our bodies. When, when you understand that, and I, I mean, I, another thing that really, well, for me as a, as, a, as a mother, as a woman, to know that forever chemicals like uh, dioxins are stored up in my body, it always makes me cry this. The only way that I'll get rid of those dioxins is, you know, there's two mechanisms for them coming out of a woman's body. One is that you dump it into your placenta and hand it on to your baby. And the other is that you hand it over through your breast milk. And it's still better to breastfeed, by the way, still breastfeed. Why isn't that a headline? Why isn't that a headline on a newspaper making every single woman who's pregnant in 2022 and everybody who's had a child in the last 30 years absolutely fuming why isn't stuff like that being put in sorry I'm getting angry about it now um being put out on adverts to make the next generation aware of the world that we are living in well I I think it's not really for the next generation either I think it's for us that are already here to do something about it I mean I think it's amazing what the young people have done through you know Greta Thunberg's leadership Fridays for the Future the Sunrise Movement and it's got to be a collaboration between all of us at all ages actually I think it's not down to any one of us to to fight this alone it's about being human beings and and what kind of world we want to live in and it is about waking up, you know, and I think, like you said about your golden throne, and thanks for sort of owning that, Laura, because I think that, you know, I have that as well. I have a side of me that just, you know, wants to sit in comfort, of course, like, and we all we all deserve to rest and have some pleasure in life. And I think something about fight, when you use a language, even like fighting for a better future, it, it should be... It needs to be fun. You know, John Lennon said what the system can't cope with is nonviolence and humour. You know, we should have fun with it so as well. But it is actually also really painful to, to know things like what I've just told you about plastic and forever chemicals. And I think that's something that we really have to work on as a social movement is is this concept that there are some people that are activists and some people that aren't. You know, we're human beings and we want a better world and we want a, a world to exist, a, a living world for our children. I'm a, you may have gathered a bit of a bookaholic. There's a, a fantastic book by, called The Entangled Activist by Anthea Lawson, which is all about this sort of word, really, you know, why some people look at activism and go, ugh, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Because, you know, frankly activism has and carries on involving sort of shaming and blaming and self-righteousness and that sort of vibe. Who wants to be around that? You know, if, if, that, if that's how how it's coming across, of course, we are misrepresented in the media as well. Uh, sometimes they don't know what to say about us because they, they sort of like to call us... Um, you know, there's different different labels, and they're sort of never quite sure which one to to, to play on us. Are we are we sort of um, champagne socialists, or are we sort of doll scrounging hippies? You know, it's they never. It seems like they've not quite decided what which label to give us, so that people like yourself go, "Ooh, I don't want to be involved in that." But really, it, it, there's lawyers, there's doctors, there's parents, there's grandparents. You know, there's people from all walks of life. I think our oldest arrestee was about ninety five. And not everybody has to get arrested, by the way, involved in this thing. And um, people generally have a really amazing time, you know, feeling in purpose and feeling like they're fighting for something that matters. 
and and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but in in 2018 when um, Extinction Rebellion you know started, I actually was um, living in Sydney in Australia, and I remember seeing it on the news and. And actually, you know, going back to what you were just um, saying about identity, I I was a bit like, yeah, you know, I, I did sort of roll my eyes at it because at the time I didn't feel the urgency about the world that I feel now. But also I did kind of roll my eyes and be like, Ugh, like I wouldn't do that as if I was on some, you know, gold throne somewhere. Whereas now, actually, I really respect people who go out and do that. I'm still not brave enough to do that. And maybe one day I will feel the urgency to go out there but I do I do find I do find the line between being an activist in 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 more direct ways like going out and rallying in the streets and then being an activist in your own way is quite interesting what tips people and I wondered if I wondered if being part of the movement since 2018 you kind of picked up on what you think tips people or sways people to to pick up a sign and and join the anger out on the roads I think probably what makes the biggest difference for people is to think about these dates where we talk about what's going to be happening on the planet, the food system's collapsing, and they think about people in their life that they care about and how old they're going to be, and they think about the life that they've got to live, and they think I, I a common phrase is, I want my grandchildren to know that I did everything that I could that's the thing that really does it for people. It can also be a particular care for the oceans or how how we're treating animals in industrial animal ag- agriculture, you know, animal rebellion, or it could, could be people really caring about what's going off in our bodies. Next up is Phil Young, founder of the outdoor lifestyle agency, The Mighty Mighty. Phil and I continue his conversation from last year about who owns the outdoors. We also discuss the significance of the Blue Earth Summit being hosted in Bristol City and the power that brands hold in 2022. When we spoke on the phone the other day about Blue Earth Summit, um, you said that the only people of colour who are at the Blue Earth Summit were the people who sat on the panel for your conversation about who owns the outdoors and also the people who manned the doors or were janitors. There were also black people running the toilets. And, and bizarrely, they were the only black people getting paid there, which I thought was quite interesting. So what should Blue Earth Summit be doing for this year? First of all, we have to look at where Blue Earth Summit was, was being held, which is Bristol. And I should imagine most people out there know some of the history of Bristol and its position as a as a port within the slave trade, there's a, a huge multicultural community in Bristol responsible for music and food and fashion and, and creating the, the city that it is, the wonderful city that it is, full of, full of culture and vibrance and lots of, lots of magical things. My question to Blue Earth Summit organisers yesterday is why, why were none of those people there? Why in a city where is probably one of the largest cities with a black and brown community in the UK. It was nobody invited. I think probably the, the financial barrier was there. I'm not entirely sure how much the tickets cost, but it was probably fairly expensive. And I should imagine that was done on, on purpose to have a certain type of person there. And I totally understand that from, a, from an event and a commercial perspective. But if, if we're looking to 
talk about sustainability and environmental issues around the world, we really need to be talking to the world, not just a privileged few people. So to, to answer your question, what should they be doing? They should be reaching out to the people in the local community, in, in Bristol, in London, in Manchester, in Birmingham, so that they represent the whole of the UK, not just a privileged few who can afford the ticket to come along. Because remember, if, if, you, if, you want, if you want to save the planet, we need the planet on board, not just a few people. And I think that's what's happening you know, from the conversations that I've been having. You know, I work in marketing, I work with brands. And no one listens to the government, really, these days. Not, I don't think of our generation, people don't really trust the government. I'm not sure if we can trust our royal family these days and what, what they stand for. So where do, we, where do we put our trust? Well, a lot of the time, I think, as you, know, you and me on the street, we look to some of the brands out there to say, well, we're wearing your clothes or we're, we're believing in your hype. I think they have an awful lot of power to shape how communities and how individuals think. There's almost a responsibility. If someone's, someone's charging you £100, £150 for a pair of sneakers or £400 for a Gore-Tex jacket that they want me to wear. We know that that jacket doesn't cost £400 to make, you know, so that someone's making that money, but we're still buying it. You know, there's a responsibility for them for some kind of, you know, step towards social justice in what they're doing to keep this world on, on track. You know, and, and from what I do is, is sports, is to allow us to to still play on, on the terrain that we call a playground, you know, and uh, there is a huge responsibility. But I think that the power that brands have and the messages that they can put out will go a long way to help shape the minds of, of the people in this country because, you know, we, we, it's difficult to trust the media. I think most people actually want to, want to be part of something so you know from my point of view in sport being a swimmer and being a swim coach the amount of people who have entered the open water cold water swimming domain has increased by a hundred percent because people have felt that they belong to an outdoor community that doesn't you know judge the way they look or the color of the skin or whether they've got previous experience in that sport and I guess that sort of inclusion it is just is so good for people, you know, to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Well, it's a, it's, it's a great opportunity to start a conversation, isn't it? If you if you have that diverse community coming together around a central theme, in, in, in your instance, Laura, it's, it's open water swimming or cold water swimming. And there's a certain joy that you can have and a certain celebration in being at one with nature and feeling as as, as though you are doing something that is almost spiritual there's a great opportunity to say okay well let's let's discuss this what else what else can we get out of this other than the act of other than the act of swimming and and that's i think where a brand can can step in there's no point telling this kid from poplar that the ice caps are melting what does he care does he care that the ice caps are melting he's got no interest he's probably never been to the seaside even telling there's plastic in the ocean he doesn't care you know what what is his life what is his existence what is going to be relevant to him well if he lives in poplar right and uh he's near let's say near the north circular for argument's sake his his main concern is air pollution 
that he wakes up in the morning and his asthma's bad or he's got a skin rash or he can't get to sleep at night because it's too noisy you know so let's if we're if we're going to talk and we want everyone on board for the conversations around a blue earth we have to talk in a language and 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 talk about topics that are going to be relevant to individuals otherwise you're wasting your time and you're wasting your breath because my guy doesn't care tell him or her something that is going to change his life for the better from the waters in bristol harbour to the seven oceans pip hair talks candidly about how choosing adventures in the ocean over having a family came to be and how other female role models balancing the life of sport and motherhood are appearing in sailing and showing the world how it's done. You don't have to answer my uh, next question if you feel like it's too personal, but because you've obviously been spending so much time doing this, I'm going to make the assumption that you do not have a long-term partner or a family. Was it a conscious decision not to go down that pathway because you felt that the pull to the ocean was too great and that actually it was more of your calling in life than having a family? So I don't mind answering that question. And actually, yeah, I think it's a question that probably people want to ask me a lot, but don't. I guess I'm asking it just because I feel that so many female athletes get written out of their own narrative by default of who they are biologically <laughs> they are childbearers and they struggle to ever re-enter the space again you know as somebody who is also highly competitive in sport and has to have many conversations with friends and other coaches I feel like the com- the conversation around it is really fragile and actually many people well many women do get judged when they choose the sport over the fact you know having a family and I guess that's that's why I wanted to ask yeah and and I think I think there is a lot of judgment out there. So I actually decided quite early on in my life that I didn't want to have a family and that was before I got into sailing. And I think and my mum says that she remembers me telling her as a teenager that I didn't want to have children. And The reason I felt that as a teenager was because I looked around. I knew I wanted adventure. I knew I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to become the best person that I could be. And I looked around in my life and everywhere I saw women sacrificing that. I didn't have a role model in my life. You know, although my my mother has been an incredible role model for me and she she did have a career and she worked while we were growing up, but it wasn't the career that she wanted. And I know that, you know, there was a parallel life where she would have achieved more in her career. And and I guess I saw that. And I very as a young person, you know, I made that I made this call, I want to be me. You know, I, I didn't kind of feel like I'd made that decision and then I had to stick to it. You know, I always said through my whole life, if I feel differently about this, you know, I'm, I am the master of my own destiny. If I feel differently about this, then I will change it. But as it happens, you know, I ended up with a, 
a career in sailing. Um, I've been very happy throughout my career. I've never felt like I missed out by not having children because I am surrounded by amazing children who I love very much and a part of my life. I mean, in terms of having uh, a long-term relationship, it's, it's something I would have loved, but just hasn't been on offer to me because you can't, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I think there are now some incredible role models in the sailing world who are showing there is a different opportunity. So there's a sailor called Sam Davies who competes in the same class as me in the Vendée Globe. Her husband also competes in the Vendée Globe and they have a little boy. And while he was very little, they took it in turns to race and look after him while the other one was racing. And then more recently, Clarice, um, who I competed against in the last one day, she is um, having a baby in October. And her partner is also an offshore ocean racing sailor. And they're kind of, they're going to do the same thing. And so now we are seeing some female role models emerge who are showing that it is possible to do my sport and to manage having a family as well. And I think that's just so brilliant for any women anywhere to see that, that strength from both parties, you know, within those partnerships. But, you know, my career has been my choice and and I don't regret a single decision that I've made. That's, that's, that's a really comprehensive reply. I hope many female athletes who are sat on the fence or undecided um, can listen to your words and help make a decision that's right for them. Next up is Richard Walker, Managing Director of Iceland. Richard busts myths on fresh food. Is there even such a thing? He also explains why challenging the status quo is essential to combating food waste across the country and what families can do to halve their own food waste, even when living on a budget. You briefly mentioned you wanted to halve food waste. So by that, do you mean uh, food that isn't bought in store? Yes, um, we're we're at a natural advantage in, in terms of our consumers food waste because we're predominantly a frozen food retailer and we've we would do this because it's in our interest, but um, we've done loads of research in terms of uh, putting families on a diet of all fresh food uh, for a couple of weeks. And then the same families on the equivalent food, but frozen for a couple of weeks. And we found that not only did they save a lot of money because frozen food is cheaper because uh, there's kind of less energy required and, and longer supply chains and that sort of thing. But actually they halved their food waste and they can do that because you you consume what you need and then you you put the rest back in the, the freezer. A lot of the narrative around food waste is about freezing leftovers. But actually, if you just buy frozen food in the in the first place, that is the the solution to, um, to sorting a lot of food waste at home. But as a business, yeah, we do uh, produce food waste 
Um, and that, but it is very low compared to the rest of the industry. However, I'm not happy about it. And um, we're coming up with kind of innovative solutions, giving some of it away to staff at the end of its life, uh, giving away to uh, customers who are shopping online, uh, coming up with better processes in store in terms of reductions. And I'm, I, we've made huge strides in terms of um uh, reducing our, our food waste, but th- there's more to do. The other thing we're doing is partnering with local community charities where we're, we're repurposing the, the food that otherwise we'd, we'd send to anaerobic digestion. And, you know, we're giving it away to charities that can then give it on to food banks and the like. We've actually given away over 2 million meals now over the last year, which is which is fantastic. Iceland is obviously contributing to a lot of things outside of um, just you know nutrition and food so how do you communicate that to the public that you're doing all of this this work because unless I was to go sifting through Iceland's website on the about page I don't think I'd I'd really know yeah yeah you're right it's a constant challenge I mean and we are a bit of a Marmite brand we've been going for 51 years uh, everyone knows us but quite frankly you know some some um, some people wouldn't want to come into our shops and I think partly that is because we have been fairly relentless with our kind of cheeky value messaging over the years. But yeah, we're, we're, we're known for the products we sell. Um, there is a lot of snobbery around frozen food, mistakenly in this this country. You know, some of my posher mates will talk about how they only buy fresh fish, but actually there's no such thing unless you're on the docks in in um, uh, in Penzance. Um, you know, the 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 chilled pizza that you'll buy from uh, Waitrose that costs 10 quid is actually frozen and and defrosted. Uh, Same with the chilled soup, same with the fresh hot cross buns that are actually frozen um, uh, six months before and then just heated up in store. Um, Even same with your fresh uh, turkey at Christmas. They're they're put into a deep, they're slaughtered three, four months before Christmas and then put into a deep freeze. Um, So there's a lot of kind of... um, snobbery uh, which is misguided in the UK around frozen food um, and Iceland but that's because we are a value retailer we've got five million customers a week and we do serve everyone from all walks of life but the reality is our, our core demographic are very hard pressed some of our consumers might only have 25 quid a week to spend on food so in terms of our consumer messaging it is fairly relentless in terms of value but that's right because you know that's that's why they're coming to us and i think whenever we've strayed too much into corporate messaging and um purpose messaging you know that doesn't um that doesn't chime so well with consumers who might not have a penny to to spare um so it's always a bit of a, a balancing act and food food waste is interesting because you know the average family wastes 70 pounds a month on food but actually if you've only got 25 quid a week to spend on food in the first place believe me you're not wasting a penny um so actually you know a, a lot of the narrative around food waste is is the wrong way around you know it, it's sort of quite establishment or it's celebrity chefs talking about how you can use disused carrot tops and make a lovely pesto and freeze leftovers and actually if you've got no time or money um the real the real insights and knowledge are people like our customers um who who are experts in in saving money and not wasting food Tim Smith is Executive Vice Chair and Co-Founder of the award-winning Eden Project down in Cornwall. 
Tim and I discuss the story of agriculture, muscular localism, what a flourishing world would look like to him, the social prescription movement, and the idea of what it means to belong. At last year's Blue Earth Summit, you covered everything from the Bible to central government. What are you going to be talking about this year? I'm not entirely certain. I mean, I think there are some really big issues coming up in society about um, the nature of citizenship as against um, consumerism and the way that we absorb or consume the world, our appetites, if you like. And I'm fascinated by visions of the future where so many of them are written by middle-aged men and are so impoverished because they write them as if here is a thing that is going to go into huge advance, you know, as opposed to a system that is going to go into terrific advance. And I'm fascinated by the sort of narrative coming out of the world uh, of research and into application, like uh, the, the world of uh, fermentation technology with food, the so-called green food movement, which is going to represent huge huge change i mean the 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 thing is because farming for example has always been seen as something rather quaint and romantic we've built up a huge amount of mythology about farming and we tend to set it in counterpoint to i think it's to do with little red tractors to be honest but i, I we we have failed to see how appalling farming as a generality has been for the soil and I think the big battleground over the next 15 years is going to be about the health of our soil and how we can protect future generations from it. So I'm very interested in the story of agriculture, where it is going, what that means for localism. Muscular localism is, I believe, our future. And I think one of the things that has happened with um, the COVID pandemic has been that it has made a lot of people who... who well, wherever they live, suddenly think, how resilient are we where we are physically? And how can we make ourselves resilient? I certainly know that here in Cornwall, there's been a very significant discussion about loyalty to local producers. And you've seen, for example, a lot of the supermarkets here in Cornwall have, since post-COVID, have been stocking a much wider range of local produce as they've seen the degree of loyalty that is being shown to the traditional greengrocers and butchers and so on. Luckily, I think the Cornish themselves are far more deeply loyal than that. And you see in many of the areas, in many of the more urban areas, you know, St. Austell, Camborne, Truro, Redruth, Hale, all those places, you see the emergence of a retail class, which is based on people's deep-seated feeling that it's good to be have localism and it's no longer a hippy dippy thing it's actually this is muscular and i think the next stage of all this is going to be to ask where else can we be local so i'll be talking i think i'll be talking about muscular localism i'll be talking about 3d printing and the end of the supply chain so we're partnered by volvo here at eden and they've given us a number of vehicles and i've hosted a, a couple of podcasts with them talking about the future and what's really interesting is that they believe that within it's a rather accurate figure 17 years but they reckon within 17 years they'll have no supply chain that they will actually be a digital constructor and there will be depots all over the world that will print the parts you need or the things you need where you are that's going to be an astonishing thing because if that's replicated 
in business throughout, you'll see that other than fresh food, there will be very little that cannot be made at distance, i.e. your white goods, your television, every, everything you can imagine really could be mended, repaired at distance and things either at distance or made locally using things. At Eden, for example, where talking to a 3D printing company in Italy about building a hotel here using 3D printing of all of the materials around our pit. Is it possible to build a really beautiful uh, beautiful hotel using only materials that you found within 10 miles, say, of where you are, importing nothing? To what degree can you get that? And it's really astonishing how close you, it looks as if you can get. The thing is the willpower. But once you start deciding you're going to do things, that means that people who want work from you have to start, suddenly start thinking about how the hell they're going to fulfill your contractual thing. Money talks with change. So that was a very long womble about what I'm going to talk about. But I'm really interested. I'm very interested in the impact of local power, local empowerment, and the purpose of democracy. Because if you if you change the world as much as I believe it will be changed in 15 years' time, what do you need central government for? In the most practical um, sense, or if you could hash out the practical details, what would a flourishing world consist of for you? I actually think a flourishing world would be where we accept certain things as being of the commons, of the common wheel, the commonwealth. We know, all of us, that it is essential for our survival that we have clean water and access to it, that we have clean air and the right not to be poisoned by it, and that we have fertile soil that can grow things. Therefore, be a place in which the conditions that enable those three things to happen are the very basis. In an ideal world, we'd have systems whereby we fed ourselves so that everybody could be nourished, where we had a rich cultural vein where our stories were told to each other and became shared, where our care for future generations was taken and responsibility borne by the wider community, not just the family, but of course the family is the starting point. And we start to tease out a vision of is there a purpose to being a human being? I don't have the comfort of religion, but if I, if I look at the way we all are, it feels to me that many of us, probably myself included, are suffering a sort of spiritual starvation in terms of meaning, whatever you call it, there's got to be there. There's got to be more to our life. Even if we have to make it up, there's got to be more to our life than just the rather arid act of consuming. There's got to be the act of relationship. There's got to be in relationship. We're talking about things that are not transactional. We're talking about gifting within a community. I mean, as you know, community comes from two Latin words, communos, together in gift. It is about acting us into being. So I would say the biggest challenge for our culture is to recognize that the isolation, the fractures of intimacy that we've created with our consumerist world and our feeling that emotions are perhaps also something that are consumed and discarded has led us really, we're all really befuddled, all of us a bit befuddled about what belonging means. My friend William Bird, who is considered by many to be the father, only because he's male, of the um, social prescription movement. He made a brilliant speech some weeks back in which he was addressing about 100 headmasters and the civic leaders of Eastbourne in Sussex. And he said, you know, I'm a general practitioner and 
when my patients smoke, that doesn't worry me very much. When they drink too much, that doesn't worry me too much. If they take drugs, which could be harmful to them, it still doesn't worry me too much. And do you know why? Because by more than a factor of a hundred times, the biggest killers in our country are loneliness, a lack of sense of belonging, and a lack of sense of purpose. If you can make those things right, you will have a healthy country. And I think that's actually, of course, it's a generalization. But I think we're just not kind enough to us. We've persuaded ourselves to a script that is industrial revolution to do with productivity and to a degree being owned by a class superior to us. We need to grow out of that and realize that one of the gifts of the age we live in is that it might just be possible for us all to live with a degree of abundance without being enslaved to manufacture, but having a menu, if you like, of activities in civil society to which you will contribute if you're not going to be contributing taxes. You know, it, it's a. am phrasing this really clumsily and anybody listening is probably going to take huge issue with me because it feels a little motherhood and apple pie. But I guess to sum up, I am very confident that a decentralized muscular localism, I'm talking about economically, a powerful independent personality to wherever we live, where the emotional intelligences of those that live there is embedded where you are, will lead to a much healthier world. And the question that comes out of that is, what is necessary to achieve that? And what's necessary to achieve that is to empower, a word which has horribly been abused, but to empower civic society to have enough knowledge to be able to transact those things which are necessary to manage the technologies and social morphologies of wherever they live. So, Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.